0: Good morning, church. Good to see y'all this morning. I just got to tell you, um, I've just had this greater and greater sense of joy. The more and more we've been gathering back together, it was uh, COVID was a hard season. For me personally, uh, you know, I've shared this with a few people, but even just the pulling back, we are so new to the area and we are just starting to establish some relationships, you know, even here in our small group, and then all of a sudden, this this big you know, clamp down, and everyone, rightly so, pulled back in their relationships to just their most essential relationships. And for us, you know, we weren't part of anyone's essential relationships, and it made me realize after a transition from a place where we'd served for 15 years and having some long and good friendships there, was like, wow, I just miss that fellowship of being with God's people and being around them. And I'm just telling you, y'all bring me a lot of joy. Just on Sunday seeing you here. Most of you anyways. I won't point out the ones that I'm, I'm kidding. Hey, my name is uh, Chad McCartney. I'm the pastor discipleship here at Austin Oaks Church. And I preach periodically as Brandon's out of the pulpit. As you know, he had his tonsils taken out on Thursday. So, you know, what a wimp. Like Thursday, he had two full days of recovery. And he still couldn't pull it off. So he called me last night, said, hey, can you put some? I'm kidding. We knew this in advance. Anyways, we are a church that wants to help people meet, know, and follow Jesus. And if you're here for the first time today, you know, perfect time to be here because we're jumping back into a series we started several months ago and is gonna carry us through much of the fall with a few intermissions, a series titled Be the Movement. And we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke, which is a story about uh, a man who wrote this story to someone who is wanting to know what it meant to meet Jesus, to follow him or to know him and follow him. And so we've been walking on that journey and, and, and in the midst of this, uh, we're at a pivot point in the book. So we covered the first eight chapters. Today we're going to look at a section in chapter 9. And this is a real pivot point in in the gospel of Luke and even in Jesus' ministry. A very significant event happens in this chapter we're going to look at today. But the first eight chapters are all about who is Jesus. It's helping us understand who he is and Luke as he's writing to Theophilus who he was writing this letter originally for is telling them and telling these stories and what Jesus was revealing. The fact that he's this coming Messiah and a healer. He's healed people. He's done all kinds of miracles. He's fed the 5,000. He's calmed the storm. He's forgiven sins. Like he's doing things that no one else has ever done. And so people are starting to realize this, this guy is like totally unique amongst people. And an event happens in the, the passage we're going to look at today that's a pivot point to the latter half of the book from 9 through 24 is really a change in the, the purpose of the gospel of, of, the Luke, of Luke. The first eight being who is Jesus, the last handful of chapters meaning what does it look like to follow him. If this is who he is, How do I follow him? And you're going to see in this passage today two keys to being what the Bible calls a disciple, a learner or a follower of Jesus Christ. These are absolutely imperative, and they'll weave through every aspect of discipleship you'll ever experience as a follower of Jesus Christ. One of them is identity. It's about our identity. It's about Jesus' identity. Identity is absolutely central and at the heart of being a disciple. And the second is priority. What are the priorities in our life? What were Jesus' priorities is his identity. Because what you're going to learn is this. Identity results in priorities. Your identity will set your priorities. And vice versa, priorities are a great guide because whatever a person's priorities is, try this this week, if you identify someone and you see what they prioritize in their life, their priorities will always reveal their identity. So Luke chapter 9, if you have a Bible with you, open it up to uh, this chapter. We're going to look at verses 18 through 26 in this passage, i will pop up on the screen as well. If you're new with us or, or unfamiliar with uh, your Bible, yet yeah, you can follow along as, there as well. But Luke is the third gospel, so if you open up to the middle where Matthew is, Matthew, Mark, Luke, you can find it in the ninth chapter. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into these truths today about identity and priority. Father, thank you so much for the joy it is to just praise you with your people Uh, to be reminded of the good things you've done in our life, but to hear about the good things you're still doing in other people's lives. It's so encouraging to hear about this young lady that you were calling to yourself and so graciously orchestrated as her time here and her happening to be here and getting connected with Seth. Every single detail in life, Lord, you sovereignly orchestrate for your glory and for our good. Lord, I pray that um, this morning uh, you would just reveal yourself and reveal the fact that uh, none of us are here by accident. And as we have the privilege of opening up your word, uh, would your spirit open up our hearts and our minds to the truths you want to share with us, to the person of Jesus that you want to reveal to us so that we might know what it, what, what it means to be a follower, what it means for our identity to be in Christ and our priorities to follow suit. We ask this all in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As a young man, I, I remember some things that were really important to me as a high school kid. Um, I wasn't a follower of Jesus at that time, so my priorities and my identity were, was wrapped up in just whatever you know the world told you was important. So for me, a couple of the things that I kind of latched on to were uh, performance. That was really important, how I performed, whether it was in athletic things that I did or, or academically in school. That was something that I was beginning to shape my identity by very significantly. The other one was, I, I realized it was personal relationships, And so it could have been a a dating relationship in particular, Uh, those shaped me in different ways. And I didn't realize even until I'd looked back and reflected on some of these things after I became a believer, how much those things impacted me. But I remember two events in particular in high school that kind of rocked my world and and revealed to me how shaky those identities were. But I continued to pursue them anyways because I didn't know anything different. One of them was uh, a relationship I was in, it was probably the longest dating relationship I'd been in at that time. And, and I was at a party with some friends, and uh, and all of a sudden I heard kind of through sort of the grapevines, you often do in high school, that my girlfriend had been unfaithful with me with some other guy. And the other guy actually happened to be a friend of mine, someone that I'd you know spent time with and played in sports with and and in a good relationship. And it was devastating to me. I remember being so angry at that point uh, that I just like didn't even know how to handle it. And from that period on, uh, really for about a four-year period, from my senior year until I became a believer after my junior year of college, I went into a string of really unhealthy relationships. Just pursuing things and trying to validate myself. I couldn't see that, that someone else's mistake was just their mistake possibly. It was so much a part of my identity that I had to figure out what did I have to fix in myself to make sure that never happens again. The other event uh, was uh, around athletics, which is something that was really important to me. And I played sports in high school, and one of them that was uh, more important to me than others was football, even though it wasn't my favorite or best sport. It was just the one that brought the most attention at that time. And uh, so I was an underclassman on the varsity football team, my Older brother had led our team to a state championship as the quarterback you know, a couple of years before. So you live under that shadow. And also, just the excitement of all that. But we were going back to the state championships. And as an underclassman, you always wonder, am I going to be part of the team? Because whenever the team travels to the state playoffs, there's only room for 44 of the players to go when you travel like that to those tournaments. And we had 100 plus kids on the team. So I remember getting called into the coach's office. And and as any good coach at that time does, as we all tend to do, you you give the news in kind of like a sandwich form, right? You start with something good, then you give the bad news, and you end it with something good. And I knew as soon as he started saying, you know, Chad, you're a great hustler. You work really hard. As soon as the good stuff came out, like immediately my heart just sunk because I knew exactly what I was going to hear. And sure enough, the news came, you, you didn't make it. To the tournament team and that was devastating for me and even though there's other sports i was probably better at and even had more of a passion for it just made me commit more and more to proven people wrong. And I pushed more and more into, into football and worked harder. And I had a very average ability athletically, but few people would work harder than I would. And so i just do what I had to to get to that spot. And I was able to be somewhat successful the rest of my high school career. I got an opportunity to play in college and went on to play in a small college. And before you get really impressed, let me just tell you about the college program I was part of, all right? <laughs> just to shoot down any you know, grandiose expectations. It, they were, it was a college that was rebuilding its football program. It had one, but it was bad. They brought in a new coach. We were the largest recruiting class he had. We doubled the size of the team. We won one game that first year. It was awesome, that one game. Uh, in fact, it was so bad that I remember one, we, we lost one game that first year, 63 to 14 Yeah, you almost like have to try to let someone score that many points. But but this is how bad it was. I remember driving home, I was so discouraged. I couldn't even stay on campus. I drove home that afternoon after the game, went home, and the next morning my parents were going to church, and I wasn't super thrilled about that, but I went with them. And Jerry, I still remember the guy's name. It was a friend of my dad's. He was like a greeter that Sunday. And Jerry was just like the most vivacious, gregarious, nicest guy you ever met, but just would say whatever came to his mind. And, And then I walked in that morning he looks at me and he goes holy smokes Chad he says I've never seen a team score that many points against another football team (laughs) and it's like I just like sunk down even further but to build myself up a little bit we over four years we built that program to a 500 program we won we went five for five my senior year Now, that doesn't mean anything because we played two middle school teams in our preseason, (laughs) but, but we went from one win to five wins by the time we left there. All this to say... This was my identity at that time. My priorities I worked out, I did all these things. I pursued. I, I even went to parties a lot of times, mainly to, to try to meet someone who maybe, if I met them, they would make me feel better about myself. I'd p- go after sports. I'd all these things to build my identity. All my priorities were focused on me building what I felt was my identity in that season of life. And oftentimes, it left me wanting. You know, my guess is, in a room this size, I'm not the only person who's ever felt that way. Now, it may not be performance and sports or not be personal relationships for you, but maybe it's, you know, an academic pursuit, and and if you could get to the top of your class, or you could succeed in your career, in your area, be the top expert, or or you could run your business in such a way that guarantees success, or, or, or here's another one, your kids, if your kids would only achieve everything that you have dreamed for them, and if you could only give them all the things that you were never able to have as a child yourself, and you have built your identity around things that you realize if you stop and pause for a moment are incredibly shaky. In fact, I bet if I could have a conversation with you for five or ten minutes and ask you about your life, that from the things that you prioritize in your life, what you put as most important, where you put most of your time, where you invest most of your resources and your abilities and your talents, that I could come pretty close to telling you Where you rest your identity. Today, we're going to see how Jesus has that conversation with us and how recognizing his identity led to his priorities and what was most important to him. He's going to reveal that to us today, but then he's going to peel back our hearts when he starts leaning into our priorities and the things that are most important to us to reveal where we have placed our identity. And in that, he'll give us an opportunity to land our identity in a place that can never be stripped away by some unfaithful person or a lack of your performance or a shattering of your dreams for your career, or for your health, or for your retirement, or for your children. An anchor that's stronger than anything this world can ever hold. So let's look into this story, this interaction that's so pivotal in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 9. It starts in verse 18 with a very familiar passage. If you've read the Gospels very often, this is one of the most famous passages in the Gospels that many people have heard. It says, Jesus says, now it happened as he was praying alone that the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? So Jesus is, after nine, these nine chapters, a year plus of time, he's finally asking them, like, who do people say that I am? What, what, what's my identity to the world, so to speak? And they say, you know, some say you're John the Baptist, Others say you're Elijah, who was a prophet, a great prophet, one of the key prophets. And others say that just one of the prophets of old has risen. Then Jesus says to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, as he so often does, speaking for kind of the group, pipes up and he says, well, you're the Christ of God which translated in our Bibles doesn't always make a whole lot of sense, but that word means the anointed one or the the chosen one or the Messiah. It was loaded with meaning for a young Jewish boy or Jewish boys like these guys were. Like he's the one. They would know this is the one that all of the scriptures have been talking about. And Jesus goes on to, once they have first, first time they've identified like, properly who he is. And he says, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Then saying this, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. So here's here's how I'd summarize this if you if you're a note taker and want to jot things down or understand this. This passage I feel is is this. Jesus' identity sets the basis for his priorities. He's now finally revealed it fully. They fully grasp it. For the first time, they're professing Jesus properly for who he is. And and you're gonna see that his identity, once they understand his identity, now it sets his priorities in terms of who he's. Or what he's going to do. It's always been his identity. Now people are finally recognizing it. And I could take you to many different passages in the Old Testament and New Testament. That's a study for another time. You can look them up. But throughout the Old Testament, you see that the prophet spoke about this Messiah, who he would be a leader in many different ways. He'd be a king. He'd be a priest to people. He'd be a prophet, someone that spoke of the future and and predicted the future and brought it about. But Jesus was more than just any one of those individually. He was the one that would fulfill it and usher each of those things And one aspect of his identity that they struggled the most with was his aspect of him being a suffering servant and savior in his first coming. They wrestled with that part of it, even though it 's revealed over and over and over again. Here is the first time it's revealed in the gospel of luke but if you if you 've read the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark is fascinating in it because one of its key themes is about Jesus being this servant and 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 coming not to be served but to serve and and to lay down his life for others and In the Gospel of mark there's three different times that Jesus says something just like this about him being killed and and delivered over, and then you know put to death and raise and he he says it in chapter 8 he says it in chapter 9 and he says it in chapter 10 and here's what's amazing about it. If you go back and read those accounts, every single time Jesus does that, you see an interaction with his disciples that show that his disciples still don't get it. They still don't understand that that affects their identity and what they want to do. In fact, every one of them, they just reveal their own humanity and they're anchoring their identity in this world. The first one in Mark, Peter rebukes Jesus, says, no, never will that happen, Lord. And Jesus says, you know, and I don't, I don't recommend you using this with any close friends, but he says, he says Satan, get behind me. Yeah, not the best way to rebuke a, a friend, but that's how bad it was. He said, you don't have the things of God on your mind. You have the things of man. Because Peter and the disciples, they didn't want a dying saver. They wanted a political powerhouse that would come in and rescue them from the oppression of the Romans. In their land. Chapter 9, Jesus tells them again. Immediately following, I mean, it's almost comical. A couple of his disciples come up and they're arguing, and he says, Hey, what are you guys arguing about? And comes to find out, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in his kingdom. Like, Jesus has just said, I'm going to lay down my life for you, and they're back having an argument about who's going to be the greatest. And chapter 9 is another one. I'm not going to tell you. You're going to have to go find out what that one is yourself. Jesus' identity always leads to his priorities. And what we believe about Jesus, who we believe him to be, will affect how we respond to him. You see, the disciples, the Jewish people of Jesus' day, their identification of Jesus was a political Messiah. They thought he was coming to rescue them from the oppression of Rome. And it's why their own identity was often as the oppressed, as victims of those who deserved better and angry at those who were impressing them. And, And they just thought, Jesus, you need to take me out of this scenario. I deserve better. We're your people or this is for us. And so Jesus had become this political figure. And when he didn't measure up, they killed him. very similar today, isn't it? How we often see Jesus, even in our modern political pictures. We have Jesus as being on our side politically, and if if we just do the things right, we should get the politics that we want, or the pressures, or the pleasures, or the comforts that we want. We see Jesus with a wrong identity, a partial identity, and it affects how we respond to him. See, when people don't properly identify Jesus, you won't properly follow him. And as he moves into this last half of the book that's all about what does it mean to follow Jesus, he's making sure, do you understand who I am? Because if you don't properly identify me, you will not properly follow me. See, if you believe Jesus to only be a Savior, and He is a Savior, but if you believe Him only to be a Savior, you will simply use Him to forgive your sins, but you won't submit to Him. You'll come to church, as many of us do, He'll he'll be like your therapeutic counselor that you regularly come to church to simply unload the hurt and the shame and the sin and the guilt in your life only. To leave this place and go back and do the exact same thing. That's what happens when we have a wrong view of Jesus. Jesus meets us, he always meets us in the midst of our brokenness. But when you truly meet Jesus and begin to follow him, he doesn't leave you repeating those same things over and over again. When you begin to submit to him as your Lord, he begins to transform you as a follower of Jesus. Some of you, uh, Jesus is a good teacher. He's a great teacher. Man, he's got some of the best wisdom out there and you embrace what you like, but if, he, if you see him as a good teacher, that's what happens. We embrace what we like. Man, I love these things. These have been great business principles. This has been really wise. This has helped me a lot in relationships, but but what you'll do also is you'll kind of say, you know, there's some teachings he has though that mm, you know they don't really like jive with, like my personal perspective, and they certainly don't fit into our modern culture. And, and that's what you'll do if you just see Jesus as a good teacher. You'll kind of glean what you think is good, and then you'll decide that stuff's not so great or society doesn't really agree with that, and you'll push that over there, and you'll go on just like that, thinking that, that you're the one that evaluates what Jesus teaches rather than him being the one that evaluates what you believe. See, how you identify Jesus will determine if or whether you follow him. Some of people love Jesus as like a spiritual guru, right? And if you have Jesus as kind of your spiritual guru or your motivational coach, you'll use him to fulfill your personal desires. You'll, you'll come to church and you'll glean those motivational Thoughts or those inspirational ones, and you'll weave them into your day and you'll motivate yourself, you'll charge yourself up, you'll use them on social media to fire up other people. But all the while, you're taking his motivation and his inspiration simply to fulfill your dreams and your purposes in this world. And Jesus just becomes your spiritual guru. You see, every time we have a wrong identification of who Jesus is, it'll play out in a wrong process of how we follow him. And when you recognize him finally, and maybe for the first time for who he is and what he has done, then you will finally submit your life to him. And he will begin the process of making you a follower of Jesus. That's the second thing that we see in here, and it leads right into this, is in verses 23 through 26, Jesus is now going to lean into our priorities and he's going to lean into our identity to reveal that, just as he's shown us his in both of these. He says in verse 23, he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Jesus says right here, here's how I'd summarize this, is my priorities reveal the source of my identity. My priorities reveal the source of my identity. And Jesus is leasing, leaning into that right now, what it looks like to be a follower. Jesus challenges those who want to follow them to do two things. He says, you need to deny yourself and you need to take up your cross and you need to do this daily. Something that is kind of a regular practice. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what becomes the greatest central priority in your life. It's priority number one. And how you respond to this priority we're going to see in this passage will reveal where your identity is truly anchored. You see, every time you resist or reject this as your priority, you reveal the reality of where your identity really is that's what he's talking about Uh, this is the priority of a follower of Jesus Christ to to deny ourselves. so what do these two things mean it's so important we understand these two concepts of denying ourselves and taking up our cross because there's so much misinformation about them and it's so misused even in our Christian circles mostly in our Christian circles so what do they mean Uh, that's a great question I'm so glad you asked I'm going to answer what we see in scripture about it. So denying yourself, well, here's what it doesn't mean. Denying yourself does not mean denying things to yourself. It's not just this, okay, so I'm a Christian now, so here's some things that I really love. I'm going to deny those things, and that makes me a better Christian because Jesus says to deny myself. Because that's been a whole movement in Christianity. In fact, it still is in many ways. In fact, no lie, I remember reading about this in church history, uh, the monastic movement when when monasteries started and 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 asceticism when people would deny themselves all kinds of things based on this passage thinking, this is what makes me a follower. And so a lot of that stuff came where people would live in super humble means and they'd resist any kind of pleasures in this world at all thinking, if I just deny myself Myself, then I'm really being a follower of Jesus Christ. And there is one character, I wish I could remember his name, but no lie, this is truth, it's in the books. Like they can't write it if it's not true, right? <laughs> it's in a, my church history book. There is one guy back, you know, he's always like 15th century, it seems like all the really crazy things happen, right? So he, he took his life, he built a 30-foot pole. And on that pole, he had a little platform that was just big enough for him and a small little bucket tied to a rope. And he lived up there for months on end. And he'd use that bucket for two things. One is he would drop down the excrement. Yeah, you're not going to forget this image, just because I want you to make sure you don't ever uh, adopt this wrong thought of denying yourself. He would drop down his excrement, and they'd dump it out and clean it out, and then they would give him his basic provisions he needed to make it through each day, and he'd carry them back up in the same bucket. And he thought that he was the epitome of following Jesus because he was denying himself. This is worth you showing up today. Don't do that, okay? I know many of you were thinking about it and had ideas starting this afternoon. I'm giving you permission not to, okay? Go to Pete Terry's and just stay here on level ground, all right? That's not it. It's not denying your feelings or your abilities. A lot of Christians go that route. I can't feel anything. Feelings are bad. They're wrong. There's nothing wrong with feelings. Now, following them is absolute truth. That's wrong. That's wrong but your feelings are something that God wired into you and they can teach you something and help you understand yourself and how you relate to God and others. You don't deny those things. Uh, You learn to understand them and properly harness them. It doesn't mean denying yourself any joy or happiness in this world. That's not what this means. It means much more than each of these things. In fact, you can can deny yourself in many different ways, but what this passage is talking about is denying yourself self-lordship over yourself. It means to say no to the God who is me. That's what it means. It means removing yourself yourself from the throne of your life, as you thinking you are the God of you and you know best for you better than anyone else, and letting Jesus take that spot in your life. And here's what's interesting about it you can really trick yourself into thinking you're doing it. You know, some of the most religious people you will see have never taken this step of denying themselves. In fact, one of the most common ways people will use for avoiding really denying themselves is to become really, really religious. Like they'll be in every Bible study you can find. They'll do 19 different devotionals and and they'll usually send them all to you multiple times in your emails. You always find them there in the mornings usually. They're they're serving everywhere. They're doing everything and they're resisting a whole lot of things and they're letting you know that you're not resisting some of the things that, that they're resisting and so you're not nearly the disciple that they are. And here's how you can often identify them is when things don't go their way, they get really angry at God because they're doing all those things so that God is in their debt. And ultimately what they're doing is they're using religion to get God to fulfill what they think he owes them in this life. They're still on the throne. They're just using God to fulfill their desires. Another common thing is they usually get really upset when people who are far from God come near to God because every time that happens it usually means those of us who are already here have to give up some of our comforts and, and pleasures and things that we've been part of to expand the kingdom. And when you come in on Sunday and someone else is sitting in your seat or you come to your group and there's more people than you thought or, or someone else is using this resource or these resources that used to be yours are now being committed to reach people far from God. It's like, what the heck, man? I've been here for this long or I paid for that or we've given to this and, and it makes you angry because ultimately you've been doing this. You've been using your religiosity to avoid denying yourself but instead to just manipulate God to ultimately give you what you think you deserve. It's sneaky like that. But denying yourself means you remove yourself from the throne of your life and you give that one place to the only person who's worthy to rule. Second thing we see is is um, actually, here's, here's something to yourself as well. Let me just state this because I think it's really important. To deny oneself is essentially to remove yourself from the throne, but it's also a positive thing. It's to give permission to God to let him use every gift, every resource, every talent that you have and put it to work for his kingdom and his glory in your life. That's what that looks like. And and you know what? You know what is most near and dear to, to God's heart on this earth? One of the places he wants to release you and empower you and put your gifts and your skills and your passions to work on this earth because it's so important to him? It's called his church. And it's his church serving each other, and it's his church serving its community. And as you let him use those gifts, as you let him empower you and put you to work in this spot, it it motivates you and it moves you and it prioritizes you and causes you to, to take your life and rearrange it in such a way that things you thought were so important in this world and all the accomplishments that you had and thought you had to have, you suddenly aren't nearly as busy with that stuff and you're more busy saying, no, this is what's most important to God. I get it. A lot of us are just way too busy to serve at church. I mean, fortunately, the, those who are serving at church—they have no life. They really have nothing else to do. They have no other opportunities. They're like, man, I guess. I mean, I, I'd just be sitting here doing nothing. So I guess I'll—I'll I'll go serve at church. That's not it at all. They made that a priority because their identity is anchored. In the person of Jesus and in his kingdom, every single one of us has way more things we can do in this life than we have time to do them. But what we prioritize will always reveal our identity. It always will. And I'll promise you this you will not get the accolades that you get in this world serving at your church. When you show a warm smile and greet someone coming in who's maybe coming for the first time and is scared to death going, oh my goodness, what are these people going to do? And you're right there to welcome them and ask them their name and point them to a cup of coffee and show them around. Man, you're not going to receive any rewards. There's no trophy. There's no golden watch when you retire. There's no pension plan. None of those things are going to come to you in this world. Guaranteed. but we don't live for this world. What Jesus will say to you in that moment you see him face to face, I promise you will far exceed any reward you could have achieved in this world if you'd neglected the opportunity to love one of his children into his kingdom. What are we doing with our lives? Our priorities will always reveal our identity. The second thing Jesus says here is to take up your cross daily. Take up your cross daily. Deny yourself. That's putting him on your throne and taking up your cross daily. Here's another one. We often use this frequently in Christianity and it's wrong. We just throw it out there is, you know, this is the cross I bear, right? That's what it is. Like for me, you know, I'm bald. I'll never grow hair again, but this is just the cross I bear. Right? This is just how I have to go through you know, life. I'm, you know, we, we use that all the time. It could be a health situation. It could be anything. This is just the cross I bear. That is not at all what Jesus was talking about. You see, when a criminal in Jesus' time picked up his cross, it was because a death sentence had been proclaimed over his life. He was told, like, you'd already been sentenced, you'd probably been beaten, and the last thing you did is you carried the cross. In our modern context, it would be like them handing you an electric chair and saying, hey, here's your electric chair. Why don't you take this and walk down that hall to the first room? That's where it's going to happen. And the mindset is, what do you think is going through that person's mind as they're walking those last steps to what they know is their death? I'll tell you what's not happening. They're not going, man, I can't wait to see, you know, my grandkids grow up and, and do all the fun things, and man, that new business I wanted to start, man, I got so many big ideas for that, and man, I'm hoping that new relationship has really been fun, I think it's gonna take off, and, and we might start a family, I hope to get married one day. You, you know what, that's not happening on that walk. When you carry that cross and you walk down that path, every hope, dream, and desire you have in this world, is being put to death. It's gone. And your only hope, if you're one of those people carrying that cross, your only hope of ever having a dream, or a desire, or a hope in this world again, is if someone can raise you back to life. Because you're dead. It's over. See, to take up your cross daily is to put your old self to death every single day. It's to wake up in the morning and before your mind floods itself, because it does this with all of us, right? As soon as you wake up, you're already running through. I got this to do, I got that to do, I got that to do, I got that to do. And Jesus is saying, hey, there's maybe nothing wrong with those things, but let's kill those right now. And I want you to stop and say, if that person's dead... And I've given you a brand new life. What do you think I want you to do with that life? What's most important to me? And what does your look like life look like now as a brand new living person? I love Romans eight, twelve, and thirteen. It says this so clearly. Um, can you bring that up? Romans eight, twelve. There you go. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh. That's Paul using this term like to our old self, our old nature, we are not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul's elaborating on this principle, putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is where our identity becomes so important. See, when we're willing to lose our life, then we're willing to actually gain it for the first time. In fact, you don't lose your life in order to gain it. Like it's not this self-mutilation. If I just kill myself and get rid of it, then I gain it. You lose it because you've already been given a new life. That's what the resurrection, that's what the gospel is. He gives you a new life. And when you're willing to put to death and get rid of the old stuff, it's revealing the fact that you've been transformed in Jesus. See, this is what Jesus said after that passage. He says, he doesn't say, woe is you, you've denied yourself, you've had to take up your cross. Man, this really stinks. Life is just going to suck for you the rest of your time here on earth. That's not what he says. He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man? Answer this. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? When Jesus talks about this, he uses a very specific word in the Greek. We only have one word for life in the English language. He uses a word that's called suke. And suke means internal life. We get our word psychology or inner person from it. He doesn't use another word that would have been available to him to use, the word bios. Right? We're probably familiar with that because biology, the study of life, physical life, is what that's talking about, he uses this internally because he's not saying, go out and kill yourself, like physically kill yourself. He's saying, you need to put to death your old identity because you have a new identity in me. But you're gonna live in this world battling between those two things until he totally transforms us in the resurrection. So understand something that's so important here. Jesus is not about ruining your life. He's not about stealing your life. He's not about diminishing your life. He's not even about ending your life. He's about abundant, eternal life. And he's told us very clearly you are never going to fully experience that here in this broken world. So stop trying. If you were on an airplane, just picture this for a moment, close your eyes and imagine this. If you are on a flight, say you're flying from here to the East Coast, you know, a three, four hour flight, whatever, and all of a sudden you notice that the person, say, in right in front of you, was um, like hanging up curtains on their window. And they're drilling in, putting really nice curtains. And then all of a sudden, they, they took their little tray table down and put up really nice granite, built like a little dishwasher underneath and an oven. They're like building a whole kitchen there. And then they're adding on to their spot. No one's next to them. They're building a garage and a little home. Like, they're just building a whole place. Like, what, what would you think of them? You go, what is up with them? Like, this is wacko. Like, you're only going to be on this flight for four hours, and then you're going to get off to, to, to where you're trying to actually get. Like, why are you doing all this stuff here that has no long term value? Church, we're on a flight, we have a moment of time here on this earth. And when we anchor down so hard and build our whole identity and our whole life around what we have in the here and now and forget about the abundant and glorious eternity that awaits us, we're just as foolish as the person on a plane that's trying to build a life in that seat knowing they only have four hours before they get to where they really are want to be. A great example of this in Jesus' most famous teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. Look at this with me. This captures what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 20. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. See, here's what we got to understand. Jesus is not the kill joy. Jesus is the one trying to give you the greater joy. Yes, every priority we have in life has a no attached to it. You want to get more fit? You're going to have to say no to certain foods. You're going to have to say no to laying around and, and get it. And all these no's to get the one yes that you want. You want to be stronger in your field and learn? You're going to have to say no to a lot of free time and yes to doing the study and doing the work to be good in your field. But you do that for the joy set before you. The same as it is with Jesus. He's saying, say no to storing up treasures here, not because he doesn't want you to have treasures. No one wants you to have treasures more than Jesus. He says, instead, store up your treasures in heaven because he wants them to last for you. Because none of them you have this side of eternity are going to. So what does it profit you to gain the whole world and gain the identity of the whole world and the fanfare of the whole world and the accolades of the whole world, only to lose what's going to last for all of eternity? My true identity is anchored in Jesus' future kingdom. And when we cling to our identity and life in this world, it reveals that we're not identified with or living according to Jesus' kingdom. Take some time to truly evaluate your priorities because they will be a smoke trail that always leads down to what your identity is based in. It's a gift Jesus gives us to help us understand. Wrong priorities will always reveal your identity crisis. And here's the, the catch. And we'll close on this as we kind of wrap up. Is the solution to wrong priorities is not simply to commit to better ones. Now that's the American way. It's it's our nature. I got bad priorities. Let me write some good ones. And by golly, this year I'm going to commit to those priorities. That will never work because your priorities will always follow your identity. If you have wrong priorities, it always leads back to an identity crisis that you're facing. You need to address who you are. And the only way you can address who you are, just like I tried to address it in all those wrong ways and it never got me anywhere, is to understand who is Jesus. And is my identity in this world and in me, or is it, placed in the person of Jesus. Because who you believe Jesus to be will determine whom you believe yourself to be. And a wrong view of Jesus always leads to a wrong view of self. You know, the distance between the earth and the sun, let's pretend the distance between the earth and the sun could be represented by the thickness of that piece of paper. Okay, 92 million miles. Let's pretend this represents 92 million miles. Then the distance across our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, would be represented by a stack of papers 350 miles high. Think about that. The highest mountain on the earth is about four miles, give or take. Four miles to the highest mountain on the earth. The majority of us in this room could not climb to the top of that thing. You have to be like an elite climber even to try to attempt it. Four miles, 350 miles of paper stacked just to, to represent our galaxy. And you know what, if you had some of the modern technology we have, like the Hubble telescope to to observe the universe, scientists say that the amount of the universe that we can observe, like with the Hubble telescope, which is millions and millions of galaxies, they believe that what we can actually see is just a speck of what the whole actual galaxy is, what actually does exist. So so now that whole big galaxy, everything we can see is like a, a speck compared to what exists beyond that. It is unfathomable how big this is. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus holds this universe together with the power of his word. He holds it together with the, just the power of a spoken word. Now, let me ask you, if this is who he is and we're seeing this revealed, he's doing things that reveal that. He heals, he brings people to life, he calms nature, he does things no one else has ever done. If this is who he is, do you think it's a good idea to invite a person like this into your life to, to, to like be your personal assistant? Or to to maybe be a good teacher to give you some counsel? Or, Or maybe to be your spiritual guru or your motivational speaker? Or is this the type of person that when you meet him, when your eyes are open to who he is, that you fall on your knees and you go, Lord, whatever you want, I'm yours. Whatever you say, it is right. It's good. It's best. Whatever you do, I want to follow in your likeness. Because as as amazing as this God is, as glorious, I mean, this would be a person like you would normally just fall back and, and crumble under the glory of his presence. But this same person is the one who stood before an earthly ruler and willingly let them shame him and beat him and mock him and kill him to show you how much he loves you and how much he has a good plan for you to welcome you into his presence. So if if God has spoken to you today about your priorities being a little mixed up, welcome to the club. Every day I get up and open this book is a reminder once again of areas I need to change. But it's a good journey from a good God who has so much more for you than you could ever fathom or think. Who is Jesus? Who do you think he is? Because however you answer that question will determine who you think you are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths. Lord, we so take for granted we so take for granted, present company included. The beauty and truths of the words that are in this book. This is the most ancient book any of us will ever hold. Most books that are this old or have this much truth or, or have this much history are reserved in in museums and protected by guards and under constant care, and it'd be impossible to even get close to them. And yet, we get to hold these in our hands. It's printed by the millions and the billions. It's the most popular book, the most spread book across this whole world. And it reveals two things about you that you are like no one else, that you are so glorious, and so powerful, and so amazing. And yet, You are as accessible as the words on these pages. So Lord, call your people to yourself. Show us how good you are so that we might align our lives with your goodness and reveal your glory in a city that desperately, desperately needs to see how good you are. In your name we pray. Amen.